Hello, and welcome to the Hague Courts Dialogue Series podcast, where decisions of courts and tribunals in The Hague, as well as contemporary developments concerning them, are discussed in detail. My name is Carl Lewis, and I'll be your host. In this episode, we take a look back at a case from 1955, from the International Court of Justice. Specifically, we'll focus on the Notterbaum case, between Liechtenstein and Guatemala, and highlight how this decision remains relevant to this day. For those who have not read the case, here's a quick summary of the main points pertinent to the conversation in this episode. In this case, the government of Liechtenstein instituted proceedings before the ICJ, claiming both restitution and compensation from Guatemala, on behalf of a Mr. Friedrich Notterbaum. However, Guatemala argued that Liechtenstein's claim was inadmissible, not least because Mr. Notterbaum, they claimed, was not a national of Liechtenstein. According to Guatemala, it was therefore not permissible for Liechtenstein to offer him diplomatic protection as a matter of international law. Now, Mr. Notterbaum was in fact born a German national, but had applied for naturalization in order to become a national of Liechtenstein shortly after the opening of the Second World War, an application which, according to Liechtenstein, was successful as of October 1939. Due to this, Liechtenstein considered it perfectly permissible to raise this application on behalf of Mr. Notterbaum and ask the court to find that his naturalisation was not contrary to international law and that their claim was therefore admissible. The court, choosing to focus specifically on whether or not Liechtenstein could rely upon the nationality that they conferred to Mr. Notterbaum in order to bring a claim against Guatemala, considered several issues. Firstly, the court noted how no admission had been made by Guatemala recognising Mr. Notterbaum as a national of Liechtenstein, and therefore moved to question whether or not Guatemala was in some way obligated to recognise Liechtenstein's right to exercise protection, due to its naturalisation of Mr. Notterbaum. In approaching this question, the court clearly stated that it was up to Liechtenstein, and every sovereign state for that matter, to set its own law relating to the acquisition of its nationality, and that it was not necessary for the court to decide upon whether or not international law imposed any limitations in this respect. Yet, the court went on to state that, and I quote, it is international law which determines whether a state is entitled to exercise protection and to seize the court, end quote. In other words, whether or not Mr. Notterbaum's naturalization would carry any international effect was a matter of international law, not that of the domestic law of Liechtenstein. In this respect, the court paid particular attention to this issue between the legal bond of nationality and a genuine connection that an individual ought to have with a state. The core question the court believed needed answering in this respect is the following, and again I quote, At the time of his naturalization, does Nautobom appear to have been more closely attached by his tradition, his establishment, his interests, his activities, his family ties, his intentions for the near future to Liechtenstein than to any other state? End quote. According to the court, the answer was no. It argued that having no settled abode in Liechtenstein, no prolonged residence, nor any intention of settling there, amongst other factors, meant that the link between Mr. Notterbaum and Liechtenstein was extremely tenuous. And because of this lack of a genuine connection, the court concluded that Guatemala was under no obligation to recognise Notterbaum's Liechtenstein nationality, and Liechtenstein was therefore not entitled to extend its protection to Mr. Notterbaum. To discuss this case and its contemporary relevance in more detail, I welcome Dr. Peter Sigeti, Assistant Professor at the University of Alberta. 
Welcome, Dr. Sigati. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm, I'm very happy that you're here to discuss this case with us. But before we uh, dive into this case a little more, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your research, and why this case is so interesting for you? So uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Alberta. Um, I have been teaching here in Western Canada since 2018. Previously, I did postdoctoral research fellowships at NYU in New York, at McGill in Montreal, and at the European University Institute in Florence. And before that, I did my SJD in Harvard. And my research interests, I have to say, have been sort of co-evolving with my teaching. I've had a major focus on comparative immigration and nationality law since 2017, since I was somewhat accidentally charged with teaching Canadian immigration law at McGill. Also, since 2019, I've been teaching property law at Alberta. So I've also been researching uh, the intersections of property law and environmental uh, protection. And uh, my general training has been in international law. I do research on jurisdiction, and I've been trying to reunite these somewhat disparate strands of research. So not a bomb at the intersection of nationality law and international law is, is I guess, an important point for me. So... Of course, there is more to the facts of this case than those which I briefly recounted at the beginning of this episode. And leading up to this recording today, you had already mentioned to me that there are some facts that are missing in the judgment, but that are certainly worth paying attention to. Could you perhaps explain these to us, as well as briefly touch upon why this case is still relevant today? Yes, yeah, so uh, so I think there's one of the most fascinating things about this case, um, if we think of the case law of the ICJ, is that this is one of the only cases which is about one specific individual where you actually have, uh, if you dig a bit deeper, there's this whole lot of human drama behind it, which, well, you certainly don't get with uh, fisheries uh, jurisdictions and maritime delimitation cases. And uh, one of the most interesting things about it, especially for an immigration lawyer, a refugee lawyer, um, someone who deals with human fates and human tragedies within international law, is uh, the facts that are are missing from the judgment itself. So um, what we know from the judgment, uh, the facts as stated is that Friedrich Notterbaum was uh, born in Germany in 1881, emigrated to Guatemala in 1905 at the age of 24. He became a very rich and influential businessman there. And in 1939, just before or perhaps even just after the war, he started, he, he went to Liechtenstein to visit his brother there and through his brother, lobby for um, for Liechtensteinian citizenship, which we, he was granted there and was dispensed from having to reside in Liechtenstein by special dispensation of, of the prince. And then he went back to Guatemala, where he was dispossessed 
uh, or I think that's about all that was mentioned in in the facts of the case. And then it uh, doesn't actually tell the the human drama and the tragedies which happened after that that he he was not recognized as a Liechtensteinian uh, national by uh, Guatemala, or rather, actually, in 1940, he was recognized, but then in 1943, they uh, abolished this recognition. His firm, uh, Hermanos Notebom, was blacklisted as an enemy alien firm, and all its uh, goods were were nationalized, those within Guatemala by the Guatemalan government, those within the United States by the US government. And he was actually, in 1943, arrested and uh, extradited to the US as an enemy alien without any trial, uh, without any actual knowledge or even suspicion, really, that he was a Nazi sympathizer. So uh, this sort of links up with um, with uh, Korematsu versus United States and what we know about the internment of Japanese Americans in the US. There was apparently a similar program within uh, the United States where they collected and interned um, German and Austrian nationals from Latin America. So um, so Notabom, Friedrich Notabom, um, spent three years being interned, first in Camp Kennedy in Texas, and then in Fort Lincoln in North Dakota, even though there was no evidence of any German contacts or Nazi Nazi sympathies. uh, He was basically robbed of half his fortune in 46 through some sort of agreement with with the United States government. He was given back approximately half his uh, fortune within the United States, but he was never actually given back anything that uh, he owned in Guatemala and was not allowed to enter Guatemala ever after. And if we think about this, that this happened in his 60s uh, to a a respected, rich uh, businessman who was then forced to to go into exile. And uh, he actually, uh, given that he was, uh, his, his Liechtensteinian nationality was the only one that was left, he actually lived the rest of his life in Liechtenstein, which, uh, Wow. Going forward a bit makes the whole genuine uh, connections or lack of genuine links especially spicy. So all of this story is is absolutely missing from the description of the facts. And in fact, it was only uncovered by Cindy Weiss, who published an article about the hidden history of Notabom in 2011. Wow. So this, I think, is is immediately fascinating, just on a factual level, and uh, also about the politics of the ICJ, of what gets mentioned and what gets left out of just the description of the facts. Indeed, this is fascinating. And of course, this idea of a genuine connection or genuine link, as you say, almost becomes ironic in the end, in, in some sense. Um, but could we take a step back for a moment and consider this idea of a genuine connection? What was the court interested in here? What issues were in play? Uh, was the issue naturalization, dual nationality? Because there seems to be potential for some confusion here. So thank you for, for bringing that up, because I think this uh, this leads to, um, to, to 
an also fascinating discussion of uh, how confusing and how contradictory the court was in its ruling. Uh, first of all, I think it's a common misconception that this is about dual nationality, when an, in fact it is not. So Notabom pointedly never nationalized, uh, never took up Guatemalan nationality. Uh, here I have not dug very deep into the the, the laws behind the case. So um, I think he was actually precluded from nationalizing by Guatemalan laws as he was not actually born in Guatemala. His sons and I think his nephews did nationalize. They did become Guatemalan nationals. And uh, this also meant that uh, eventually, I think the, the Notabom plantations and family concerns did continue after the war. So uh, if you uh, Google Notabom Guatemala, it's also interesting, I think, that uh, obviously the case will be the first things that come up in Google. But if you scroll just a bit down, you will come to the homepage of the Notabom coffee plantation, where I guess you can order coffee online from Notabom's grandson or great-grandson. But uh, but back to the the ICJ ruling itself. So it's it's pointedly not about dual nationality. He was always a German national, and when he nationalized in, uh, he took up Liechtensteinian nationality. It was not called into question by any parties that he, through the operation of the law, immediately lost his German nationality by gaining Liechtensteinian nationality. So. As far as I know, I think uh, German nationality still doesn't doesn't always or only in rare cases accepts dual nationality. So if you nationalize, you're expected to lose all other nationalities and vice versa. If you nationalize elsewhere, you will lose your German nationality. So um, so the court does also does not mention that by stating that Notabom does not have enough of a genuine link to to um, Liechtenstein for for this uh, for his national uh, nationalization there uh, naturalization there to be accepted. Um, he the, the court is also saying that it's proper or it would be proper for Notabom to be stateless. That that is the way he should be viewed or recognized internationally. So, so I think that's an important uh, misconception about the way that the, the, the case is viewed. The, the other important part of the ruling is the, the separation between the domestic and the international sphere that the judgment institutes. So on the one hand, or it introduces its ruling by saying that, of course, nationality, questions of nationality are within the domaine réservé of every state. Every state has the right to create its uh, own nationalization laws however they see fit. And there's really nothing the court or any other authority in international law can say about that. What the court can say about it is just about the international recognition of that status by other states. So uh, you, you have this uh, either recognition or creation of, of this uh, wide trench, shall we say, between domestic status and international status. 
and uh, that makes it quite hard for um, I think for for current day authorities to pronounce on the recognition, non-recognition, validity, non-validity of uh, of any sort of status in uh, in any other country because it's quite confusing whether they are pronouncing this recognition or non-recognition from the standpoint of international law or from the standpoint of their own domestic laws, uh, what are they actually entitled to in terms of either recognition or non-recognition. So a surprising silence on the possible issue of statelessness in this case. And indeed, an important part of this case is how it raises this question of what role international law can have on matters of nationality, right? Uh, yes, yes. And uh, it has been subject to quite scathing critique by basically every expert on, on nationality laws or nationality in international law. Um, so whether we're looking at Audrey Macklin, uh, Dmitry Kochanov, Peter Spiro, uh, basically everyone has... Um, has noted how it doesn't make sense really conceptually outside of double nationality, the, the only place where it has sort of been followed, where, as I've mentioned before emphatically, the facts actually are not about double nationality, so it should be more general, but it really isn't. And um, Peter Spiro especially has this good summary where he goes over subsequent cases and notes how it basically has always been distinguished on the fact. So it's always cited, never followed one of those perhaps strange precedents, which uh, because of the prestige of an ICJ case is always mentioned, but then actually has failed to, to set the trends or the conversation. Taking this into account, I wonder whether we could then briefly discuss this relationship between a sovereign state and its right to grant nationality as it sees fit. Could you expand a little here on this idea of nationality being within the, as you said, domain réservé of states? I think that what has been stated as nationality being the last bastion of sovereignty, the the area of the law that international law has the least concern about, is an older idea than than Nottebohm. So it was recognized already by the Permanent Court of International Justice in, I think, 1921, 22. I'm I'm not sure about the exact year of the nationality decrease in in Tunis and Morocco case where uh, where the court stated that questions of nationality are undoubtedly and completely within the, the domain réservé of, of each state. And this has historically allowed, especially before the rise of human rights, a, a lot of quite shocking internal developments. So, for example, the way that slavery was regulated in the United States, where, where slaves were U.S. nationals, but they were not U.S. citizens. So uh, if a gentleman decided to travel abroad with his slaves before 1863, then those slaves were still under the protection of the United States, but you still had to distinguish them from actual citizens. 
similarly in the 1930s when in Nazi Germany, uh, Jews were stripped of their citizenship under the Nuremberg laws. Uh, this did not mean that there was no jurisdiction or theoretically even some sort of diplomatic protection over Jews who, who were outside of the Third Reich. So they were still subjects of the Reich without being citizens of the Reich. So, so this sort of external view where you have less than full status, but still some recognition of subjecthood and jurisdiction, I think was, was, is, is and was crucial to the maintenance of imperial states, let's say, of, of any sort of states where you have some sort of internal hierarchy, whether that's based on race or uh, ethnicity or, or any other distinction. Okay, so let us return now then, if we can, to this concept of a genuine connection that an individual would need to evidence between themselves and a state. What does this mean exactly? Um, is it still the case that this genuine connection needs to be shown before diplomatic protection can be offered by a state? Yes, exactly. This is one of the the, the big question marks of, of Nottebohm, where, where the judgment says that some sort of genuine connection is, is necessary. And um, if we think of birthright citizenship as such, of course, there has to be some way to decide some sort of linkage between the state and the newborn which you know, is either the fact of being born on the territory of the state or the fact of being born to existing nationals of the state. So, uh, so perhaps you know, the existence of, of links or connections seems even logically necessary. But, but what is meant by genuine or who decides what makes a link genuine becomes very questionable. So... Uh, uh, the court mentions either long-time residence as the precursor to, to naturalization or uh, being born on the territory of a state as types of, of uh, genuine links. But if we think of the way states have regulated their, their nationality, this was never true, neither before nor after Notabom, that you actually needed to have genuine connections to a state, or vice versa, that having genuine connections meant that you actually were a national, a citizen, a subject, or you had any sort of status under domestic law. So, so we can think of, um, of, of cases, for example, where someone is born within a state and then uh, emigrates along with one's parents at age three or five and never goes back to their country of birth. No one actually disputes, no, no state disputes that in these circumstances, the person is still a national of their state of birth. So apparently, Genuine connections don't actually mean that much in any sort of usoli situation, and and uh, it's it's even more the case if someone is born abroad to parents of a certain nationality who has never seen their country of birth. Yet, not only is birth abroad acknowledged as a source of citizenship in all eusanguinis contexts and states. What we've been seeing in the last decade or so 
with Italian and Spanish and Hungarian and some other nationality laws. Uh, we, we have seen this resurrection of Jus Sanguinis from generations and generations before. So both Portugal and Spain have offered to Sephardic Jews as historical reparations the restoration of their um, Portuguese or Spanish citizenship if they can show that they're descended from the, the Jews who were driven out in 1492. So there you have this, this gap of, I don't know, 10 generations maybe, or even more, where suddenly, based on Jus Sanguinis, citizenship is resurrected, so to speak. Now, you can say that there are, that you have to prove some type of genuine link. So you have to prove that you belong to a Sephardic religious community, that you follow Spanish or Portuguese rites, R-I-T-E-S, not, not legal rights, um, in, in your practice. So there are some sort of genuine connections, but not to the state as such. Uh, which would be impossible, I guess, proving connections to uh, a medieval state that existed 500 years ago, but but to this this community, which is Spanish in its name, but then Hebrew and Jewish in its practice. Likewise, Italy offers citizenship to descendants of Italian immigrants who may not have visited Italy for several generations. Hungary offers citizenship to uh, anybody who can speak Hungarian and was born on the territory of the pre-1918 Hungarian kingdom, even though ethnically they might be Serbian, Croatian, Ukrainian, Slovakian, etc. All they have to do is that they speak Hungarian at a reasonable fluency. So, so what counts as national or as a genuine link has always been open to contention and nobody has challenged uh, states' rights to, to set these, these criteria. So imagine then an Autobahm-style case reappearing now in front of the World Court. Would we expect to see a different approach to this question of establishing a genuine link between an individual and a state? Or despite the court not needing to follow its previous decision and so follow precedent, could you therefore see the court potentially sticking to its decision in the Notabom case, and perhaps for good reason. So I don't think that my role in this question is to answer what the ICJ would do. Definitely and, not. Uh, have to. Right? Uh, <laughs> given that I don't know anything about the members of the court, the current politics, yeah. etc. Um, and um, I'm also uncertain about what they should do, mm-hmm. but uh, I think there are there are two paths, or well, let's say three paths, including the path that that you have outlined, the one of of we'll just blindly follow precedent and say that this is no different from what we said in nineteen uh, in the nineteen fifties. So one one option would be a, a return to uh, to the permanent court of of international justice to the 1920s and uh, overrule Notabom by going back to to the uh, nationality decrease case and say without any any sort of caveat or or any sort of remark that everything is up to individual states this is completely within the domaine réservé we're going to 
withdraw our our statement about genuine connections and acknowledge that it's a free for all. So so that would be an easy, um, I think, jurisprudentially easy uh, judgment or take by the ICJ. But um, there are at least some good reasons to um, to say, I think, that the ICJ should have a more thorough reconsideration of the matter and that they should assert some um, uh, some greater role for international law. And I'm I'm going to um, going to mention two reasons for this, why international law nevertheless should insert itself into the state versus national uh, link. One of them is about human rights concerns and the the rather muddy relationship that the right to a nationality has somewhere in in this vague outskirt of human rights without actually having to 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 uh, having been able to coherently state what a right to a nationality is or should be and the other question is the abuse of grants of nationality for purposes of of an aggressive and hostile foreign policy which which has been typical of Russia since uh, since at least the 2010s so so the first I'm 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 going to mention these two um case studies let's say the the first the question of of the relationship to human rights I think has been best discovered or outlined by Nora Laurie in in a recent book entitled Offshore Citizens, which is about stateless people in the United Arab Emirates and is the latest stop in a very uh, bizarre story about actually the sale of citizenship by the Comoros Islands of of all places. So... um, there was um, a book, I, I think 2016-2015, by Atossa Abrahamian, uh, an American, Armenian-American um, journalist, who wrote about this bizarre scheme whereby stateless people in Kuwait had been offered the opportunity to get citizenship from the Comoros Islands, one of the poorest African nations, uh, and thereby gain some sort of status. But bizarrely, the status would not allow them to to actually live uh, or go to the Comoros Islands. So they would still be uh, living in Kuwait, but uh, they would no longer be nominally stateless, which meant that it would no longer be the responsibility of Kuwait as residents of Kuwait to, to, to care for them. They could be potentially expelled somewhere else. So, so you had this outsourcing of status that, that was openly, quite openly rights destructive. And uh, the way that uh, Abrahamian described the story, so this the negotiations broke down. In the end, the uh, the stateless, the bidun of uh, Kuwait did not get uh, Comoros citizenship. But apparently, the whole scheme was resurrected by the Emirates. And uh, a couple of years later, 
uh, it did come to fruition in the sense that stateless people in the Emirates who had been waiting to uh, naturalize and acquire status within the Emirates for more than 30 years were suddenly given these Comoros passports, which did not allow them to travel to the Comoros or basically anywhere else. But uh, at that point, you know, the Emirates could then declare, well, we've sold, uh, solved our statelessness problem. You know, go home, United Nations. There's no, no real problem anymore. By the way, these people no longer have any rights to social services or schooling or housing wow. in the Emirates because they're nominally foreigners. So... Um, from a human rights perspective, the outsourcing of uh, nationality is is rather perilous in this mm. way. Um, and uh, if we go with the nationality decrease case, then international law has nothing to say about this. Um, so that's one of the dangers. And so in some sense, we could say that well, actually we do want to see some genuine connection between an individual and nationality to counter the possible weaponization of nationality in the ways you have described? Uh, yes, it's just extremely hard to, um, to I think, say what exactly, how exactly, what, what are the uh, genuine links yeah. that we are looking for. Because uh, if the Comoros Islands uh, had been willing and had been able to actually grant rights to these people, to give them diplomatic protection, to allow them the chance to to move to the Comoros Islands and, of course, where the Comoros Islands in a financial state where it could actually promise a decent life to, well, either its own citizens or to uh, stateless people who were resettled there, then uh, then this would be a, a very positive development. And there was also this issue of passportization, right? Yes, and, and, and the other is the, what's what's been labeled passportization. So yeah. the, the Russian policy of almost automatically granting passports and citizenship to Russian minorities living in Georgia, in Moldova, in the Ukraine, in uh, former Soviet, post-Soviet countries, which which I guess current Russian foreign policy thinks of as, as its own empire. So at that point, once there is a significant number of nominally Russian citizen, minority Russians living in neighboring countries, then Russia can say that, well, we're not intervening in the internal affairs of neighboring countries, even during an, an invasion, let's say during the Crimean invasion in 2014, uh, they can say, well, what we're doing is just protecting our own nationals. And uh, here again, there has to be some distinction, I guess, between uh, one's nationals abroad, one's real genuine nationals abroad, and people who have been granted status without, uh, without an interview, without uh, having any, um, any actual ties to Russia apart from, from language and related ethnicity. So, so this harks back, current Russian foreign policy in this way harks back to 1930s uh, Germany, where again, Hitler used minority Germans in neighboring countries in Czechoslovakia, in uh, Poland, uh, Hungary, elsewhere as bargaining chips, trying to set himself up 
at least for a couple of years in the 1930s, as the defender, the very vocal defender of human rights and minority rights. Of course, all this in, in bad faith. So actually a call here, in a certain sense, for international law to have or attain some say on this issue of nationality. And a spotlight on a case from the 1950s, which still holds practical relevance for contemporary issues, such as passportization and statelessness. Dr. Segeri, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast to discuss this case. Thank you so much for, for having me on this podcast. For the listeners who are interested in reading the Nottebohm case, a link will be provided along with this podcast where you can access the ICJ decision, as well as a link to Dr. Segeti's profile, where you can read more about his research and publications. Thank you so much for listening to the Hey Cool Stylic series podcast. We look forward to you joining us again for our next episode.